what did you have for breakfast today? I think I had my homemade muesli with a bit of fruit this morning. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. Welcome to Uncommon, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name is Jordan Michaelides, the CEO of Neural Media and your host. In this episode, I have for you Gary Weaven. Gary is the former chairman and founder of IFM Investors, former chairman of Industry Super, and has served as a board member or executive for multiple organizations, including Emmy Bank, the New Daily, Pacific Hydro, and the ACTU. He's also known as Australia's godfather of industry super or father of superannuation, as some people have dubbed it, which I'm really not sure that he approves of, and it's difficult to tell whether it's a compliment or not for Gary, but for a lot of people, it remains a fact. Now, Bernard Wheelerhand was, was kind enough to introduce me to Gary when I asked who he'd recommend as a guest, and he immediately called me, a few hours later to talk about Gary and his, quote, pugnacious attitude being a brilliant fit, knowing that we'd both get along in the process. And what I like about Gary is his his disagreeable attitude. And it made me realize that my own sort of cynical nature or cutting through that corporate crap that we, we largely see and being pugnacious, as Bernard calls it, is a very useful trait to hold in life. He has this unique perspective sitting between both labor as a former unionist and capital as a passionate fund manager and economist. And the size of the industry super movement and fund managers like IFM is incredible considering that the industry only really kicked off in the mid-90s, a testament to a career and a life well spent for Gary. This was a great episode from an industry stalwart that covered being the, quote, godfather of superannuation, the union movement, tax policy, which is actually interesting, as as it may sound, Uh, what is super and why is it important, the Royal Commission, the business of funds management, infrastructure interests, energy policy, and as he nears retirement, what he's excited for. So, if you enjoy business, investment, or leadership in the corporate world, this is a very enjoyable episode. If you've got a friend who may enjoy that sort of stuff, do send it to them. Otherwise, if you enjoy it yourself, consider subscribing on your podcast app. Uh, but if you want something similar, I would suggest checking out our episode with Bernard, which was episode 73, the one who introduced me to Gary. And he himself 
a, a well-placed executive in the mining and renewable state, uh, space for many, many years, and he has some great little quips on leadership and business as well. So episode 73, do check that out. If you want the show notes for any episodes, including this one or burners, just head to neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash podcast. But as I say each week, thank you so much for listening, our regulars for coming back, our newbies for giving this one a shot. I hope you all enjoy this conversation with the godfather of industry super, Gary Weaven. Gary, thanks for joining on this. What's a bit of a... Is it overcast out there or is it sunny or... Oh, I think you'd say it's a bit overcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, unusual weather for this time of year. I would have thought by now it'd be nice and, nice and toasty. Um, first question for you there, I was trying to think of things that would sort of break the ice as we get into the interview. Bernard gave me lots, whether it's about golf or Essendon, but there was one thing that kept popping up when I was looking at your, uh, these articles and and the way that they talk about you as the, the godfather of superannuation. How does that, uh, title sit with you? Uh, I recognise that it's originated by uh, people who would want to make it a pejorative term, uh, but it doesn't worry me particularly. How do you view yourself when it comes to the superannuation industry? Um, A veteran, I guess. Uh, (laughs) And sometimes it feels uh, a bit like that in a combat veteran uh, sense. Um, But no, I'm just someone who's been closely involved with the development of the industry funds and super and uh, been at it a long while, had a few good battles along the way and <laughs> some pretty good successes. And uh, I'm curious when I was looking at this career and, you know, we, we all think about things that we're going to do when we grow up, whether it's firemen or yeah. teacher or whatever. What, when you were a kid, what did you think that you'd be doing? Uh, wow, that's an interesting question. You know, I think... I haven't really thought about that, but I, I, I think possibly um, I would have um, been thinking along the lines of uh, teacher simply because teaching was about, you know, one of the very few um, professions that you actually came across. Uh, really? You know, when you, were, when you were in my neck of the woods, you didn't actually mix with a lot of professions and uh, it would definitely beat dentistry. <laughs> why, why does dentistry come to mind? Because you went to the dentist? I think, I don't think I could ever associate any aspiration with dentistry <laughs> in any way, <laughs> whereas some teachers weren't uh, entirely awful. Now, you grew up in uh, Northcote here in Melbourne. You studied economics, right? I did, yeah. Yeah. How did that sort of pathway come about? Uh Again, I think actually interesting that because it, it's a good segue question or a good follow-on question because uh, I had a uh, an economics teacher in high school that I one of the few teachers uh, I really could take to and thought was pretty you know I sort of had, gave him a lot of respect. That's very interesting. I wonder what level that impacts on an individual because if I think about it myself, like I my favourite class and. Maybe that's just because I'm a very conscientious individual, I like things being in order, was accounting. But I, I mean, I studied that, like I did commerce, economics, accounting at uni. But um, 
That's very interesting because he, he was my favourite teacher. Mm. That's interesting. That's very interesting because I actually chose La Trobe University because it was the only university in Melbourne where you could do an economics degree without doing a county. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. I'm pretty sure every university now has that. You have to do at least f- maybe two units of accounting, I think. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, I know that. La Trobe now includes accounting, but you could definitely bypass it in those days. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. Okay, because I went, I went to Swinburne and, um, yeah, accounting, my major was accounting, banking and finance, so it was sort of a split between accounting and economics. But that's, that's a, it's a super interesting observation. Where did the union movement come into it? Was it the fact that you met Bill Kelty at uni or had it always sort of been a part of your life growing up? Uh, we we went through uni uh, school actually, and uni pretty much at the uni at the same time. School he was one year ahead. He went out and worked for a while, so I think it was part of it. But you know, I think you might ask the same question of him, and and I think um, part of the answer I reckon is that uh, this was the sixties, the late sixties. This was uh, the era era of the Vietnam War, mm. uh, it was probably the first period where uh, working class kids got to get to uni at all in any sort of numbers. There were a lot of you know scholarships around and that sort of thing. But it was also a period where partly because of conscription and the Vietnam War, the, the sort of establishment, particularly and the business establishment, was a bit on the nose, to be honest. Mm. And so I think a lot of that generation of graduates... Uh, tertiary graduates didn't weren't like today you know busting their neck to get the top corporate spots yeah that's interesting well what was the year that whitlam introduced free university uh well he came to power in 72 and i think moved pretty quickly in that direction but i'd already i'd already graduated by then yeah interesting okay so but but there were you know there were there were all, there were Commonwealth scholarships and 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 uh, education department studentships, quite generous ones. Yeah. Around in the sixties. Okay. If you, I don't know if you know much about university fees. How comparable are they to? I don't know much about them, <laughs> but uh, from what I can judge, there uh, people are doing it much tougher now. Yeah. Than than we did, and that's a great shame. Yeah. If you, if you think back to your life and, and childhood, I always am intrigued about the influence of parents because I find that even now myself, you see sort of aspects in yourself that are your parents. I'm curious as to what principles you hold with you today that you may have seen from either maybe directly or indirectly at all. Uh, yeah, well, I think uh, I aspire to have some humility. I'm not sure I entirely succeed in that, <laughs> but it, at times. Uh, but Well, but, um, well, Bernard said you're a bit of a pugnacious fella. A pugnacious <laughs> fella. Well, I definitely didn't get that from my parents. Uh, yeah. Or if I did, it would it would have been maybe p- perhaps a little from my mother, but certainly not my father. He was a very gentle man. He was a truck driver, uh, but not, not your rough and tough uh, stereotype truckie. Uh, so he, he was a... Uh, quite you know, quite a quiet man, very, but very learned in his own way, mm. self-taught, and uh, um, 
and with a huge belief, both of them, in education, of course, which is a pretty common story for that era. Yeah. So it sounds like humility and that belief in education seems to be a huge element that they imparted. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's the earliest memory you've got of your childhood? Wow. Uh, I think that goes back to very, very early <laughs> years. Uh, we, we used to... Uh, my my dad built this contraption is the only word for it uh, out of a truck body which was like a motorized caravan. Okay. And so we used to travel it, you know, Christmas time, and, uh, and uh, so I think my earliest memories is probably jogging around in the in the back of that, uh, you know, in in uh, various remote parts of Victoria, I think. Right. So so what was he? He sort of took a truck chassis and mm. put like a caravan on top of it. He did. He, he built the whole thing. He built the motor Jeez. and put the motor in. He put he uh, built built the chassis around it, fitted it out, put a fridge, you know, put a uh, sink and all that sort of stuff in it. Wow. Yeah. That's very interesting because I, I've always thought about, you know, you, if you look at your career and I'm just going to rattle off a few things that I was having a look at, like obviously – We'll get into IFM investors and your your involvement in the super industry, but it's not just that. Like you, you've got to look at things like the Melbourne Docklands Authority and your your involvement with that, Infrastructure Australia, ME Bank, uh, organisations like the New Daily. You sort of seem to have this uh, this attitude where you just don't really see something as an obstacle. If that makes sense. Like you're willing to go fight for something because you just, all you see is an outcome and there's problems that you need to fix along the way. And I'm curious as to whether he imparted that onto you maybe indirectly. Mm, I'm not sure about that. I, I certainly I certainly do like uh, to create things. You know, I like to be, I would never be happy with filling a role in an existing establishment. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do like to, be part of creating something and grow with it. Mm. Um, that sort of gives a sense of ch- achievement, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't, neither of my parents were ambitious for themselves at all. Well, yeah, ambition, but ambition is a totally different thing. You know, ha- having the ability to look at some, at, at a problem and, and see it as achievable is, I feel a little bit different. Mm. Um, Probably you're right. Mm. Yeah. It it was interesting when we were first chatting about doing this interview, <laughs> the first thing you asked was uh, about my politics, which I had a good chuckle about with uh, with Bernard. Um, he seemed to say that I was sort of down the middle and I, I would agree with that. Um, although I think I said to you over email, I had, I've, I've got a Greek family. They came here. My dad disagrees with my uncle that he was a communist when he came here but apparently he was mm. um and he i guess our family's sort of always been socially liberal but he sort of had this chip on his shoulder from about the early 60s because of what happened to his business and what i, I think i've explained this on previous podcasts but the gist of it is he had an argument with the herald weekly times and the printers union because they were printing a sunday paper and uh, they basically removed all the staff that they could potentially use for that paper. And so now <laughs> there's sort of this funny dichotomy in my family where they 
you know, they just have this this chip on their shoulder about unions. And I, I honestly think it's just down to that. And you've had this unique experience where you've been involved in both unions. So that was as Vic State Secretary for the Muni- Municipal Officers Association and Assistant Secretary for the ACTU. But you've also worked in the field of capital or capital management. Um, so being that you sort of have these two different viewpoints of capital and labor, I'm curious as to, for my uncle and my family, why is there value in having unions or organized labor? Right. Well, okay, that's a great question. But before I answer that, yeah. can I just say uh, the reason I would have questioned uh, about what your politics might be, not, not knowing you, comes from long experience of... With the media. With the media yeah. and being misrepresented deliberately uh, by the media, um, particularly because of my background, union background. So that that's that's it's not a chip on the shoulder. It's just yeah. a hard hard cold assessment. Well, it's sort of what the media does <laughs> is you're associated with one thing. You're mm. you're an anti-fascist. You're a, a union thug. You're a racist. You're a bigot, just because you may associate in some way with something, and mm. it gets this absolute statement, which it is can. which it is can. totally ridiculous. Particularly when when that, yeah, that certain media has a particular axe to grind, you know. Yeah. Uh, but look, I think I think on the question of unions it is the unpleasant experiences that get remembered often uh, and reported on and if you happen to be you know on the wrong end of of some uh, campaign or change that unions were making then it'd be understandable that you're not very happy Um, for example i would think that a lot of uh, corrupt financial planners that have been taking fees for giving bad advice to people for years would not be very happy no. with either the industry fund movement or unions, you know. Mm. On the other hand, I think there would be millions of workers who would be very, very happy that some part of the financial services industry did actually try and look after their retirement interests yeah. and, and you know, has, has been really now demonstrated by the findings of both the Productivity Commission and the Royal Commission. So I think I think what I'd say to your relatives is uh, a lot of the things that they take that we all take for granted uh, as benefits of of modern life were actually achieved by union action in the first place, including some rules around you know having weekends off and uh, <laughs> uh, having annual leave and uh, you know and if you if you don't have to look very far around the world to understand that, or very far back in history to understand that. Yeah, I'm, I'm having the because all my 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 dad and my uncles they're all business owners themselves. Um, like if we look at how we've done, we've done exceptionally well considering that my grandpa came here with less than five pounds mm. to his name. Mm. Um, you know, we're sitting. I'm sitting here in East Melbourne interviewing you. It's sort of testament to that that you can come here and do pretty well and uh yeah it's it's, it's interesting because we my dad has this belief about um organized labor being the reason why it's hard to manufacture because th- he's a manufacturer mm. he's a printer Ma- it's hard to manufacture things in australia and i would uh, almost argue otherwise that it's more to do with trade 
mm. and uh, and interest rate policy. Well, I think first of all, technological change has wiped out that printing. Too. It's wiped out printing. I yeah. mean, you know, wouldn't matter. Of course, yeah. but along the way, if you were if you were trying to run a workforce mm. uh, and you had minimum rates of pay and other restrictions placed on you mm. um, that you considered excessive. Well, you know, I can understand you've got a particular axe to grind. You wouldn't like that. Yeah. I've, I've long had a view or I formed the view through life um, fairly early on that that small and medium businesses are the best and the worst. Yeah. They're the best and I, the worst. A hundred percent, yeah. You know? And so, so the problem is that uh, the good, one, good employers, you know, get tarred and tagged yeah. with the behaviour of the bad. And, um, you know, you'd need, I think, far less union intervention. You'd need far less regulation if everyone was decent, honest, <laughs> ethical people. But, it, yeah. but co- competition can cause a race to the bottom. Yeah. You know, and if, if you've got a rogue down the, down the corner who's manufacturing whatever... Uh, very cheaply, simply because they exploiting the hell out of uh, some worker arrangement. Well, pretty soon that's not very good for you either. So, no. you know, I think you you need to have a balanced view about these things. I think so. I think not having a dogmatic view either way is the key to it. Um, I mean, the thing on Australia is you said basically automation that's been a big issue, but I, I still think that you know trade has played a massive part. We've exported a lot of our labor overseas Mm. because it's cheaper to do it little things like that have have massive impacts on the local economy and i think that sort of plays into the answer he's looking for yeah well all of those things are true but you know that it's increasingly it is a global world Mm. so the barriers to trade are melting, not as a result of deliberate government policy, but because they're just being knocked down by technology. Yeah. Travel is easy, communication is instantaneous around the globe. Um, and, uh, you know, if you talk about the printed word or the image, it can be transmitted from anywhere. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's no longer as relevant, is it? It's not. Um, now, on this point of... of the differences between labour and capital. You've, uh, I was reading through a lot of different articles, and one of the key things, that, one of the key things that stands out to me right now, and and goes to your point about technology, is we're sort of in this weird place right now. It sort of seems, you know, I've read a lot of history books of late, and it sort of seems we're in a similar place around that sort of not robber baron era. I'm not saying it's as bad as them, but it sort of seems like the borders between nation states are melting and the the power that corporations have is getting larger and larger. Like it's easier to do things nowadays and that has massive social impacts. And I think that could be the reason why you see a lot of this sort of populism rising around the world. And I know you spoke about, you, you spoke about a, a worry about low taxes Um and now, as I guess you're heading into retirement, what's sort of your current view on the differences between industrial relations and tax? You know, where should society be going? Should we be focusing more on taxing capital or is it expenditure or income or something else? Where, where does this all go over the next 10 to 15 years, do you think? Well, first of all, I think that 
what causes insecurity in people and some outbursts and um, sometimes uh, disruption uh, and even irrational behaviour uh, is this dislocation of people caused by the pace of change. And that, you know, it's, it's not actually a function of governments at all. Governments are absolutely <laughs> takers of, of, of this. It is caused by the rate and pace of technological change. And people feel insecure and powerless. You know, I think that's, that's the first thing, uh, that people are used to having security. They're used to change being very slow. Mm. We've all evolved in quite static, comparatively yeah. static environments, yeah. village environments, whatever. So that's the political, overriding political background, I think. Where we're at now, um, again, I, I would say, you know, it's, it's not a question of having absolute views. I think uh, I would, I'm at the end of the spectrum where I'd be more worried about really leaving the weak behind mm. than I would be about overtaxing the super rich. Mm. That's generally my statement. Uh, but that doesn't mean I believe you can tax, you know, people or enterprises forever and expect no. them to keep investing. Of course they won't yeah. keep investing. The, the, the market economy, um, for all its uh, foibles, is a very powerful um, factor. But people have to understand markets don't solve any, even... Even classical economic theory never have ever said that markets solve everything. For example, they don't solve fair distribution of income. There is no, no model on earth that shows that fair distribution of income right, is solved by free markets. There's also no uh, sensible treatise on earth that can actually describe any widespread free market <laughs> because markets generally are not free and information is not equally shared, and uh, time perspectives and things like that uh, very, weigh very heavily. So I think um, you've got, you've got a, a policy has to be at the margin and be adjusted at the margin to meet the circumstances of the day. Right now, I can't see any, any reason whatsoever why you would want to reduce the, 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 the major corporate tax rate, particularly on large business, yeah. and particularly on businesses that are substantially owned offshore. I, I couldn't see that as being a priority. It's not that I think they want high taxes, it's that if you've got a priority, that would not be my priority, quite, yeah. quite clearly. I would lean more towards um, the subsistence rate for people on social service, um, you know, unemployment benefits. Now, you know, like... That does not mean to say that I want to encourage people to be on unemployment benefits or that I don't want to have um, a really uh, you know, strong program of encouraging people back into the workforce, retraining and all of those things. I don't think it's good you know, to have uh, great numbers of people idle because in the end, the unwillingly idle you know, become... They give up in the end yeah. and they become... The complacently idle. Yeah, and they that's sort of, not good for them. They get stuck in this sort of system. They get stuck in it, and yeah. it's not good for them, and it's not good for the society. It's not good for the crime rate. It's not good for uh, human relations, either. So I think you know you. It, but it's a matter of balance. So I'd I'd be saying, look, 
people should stop scrambling for a better financial advantage for themselves out of government at the moment and think a little bit more about what the government should be doing to improve the society in the long term. So that's why I come back to uh, much closer to the to the Labor stance on education and health and those sorts of issues. I mean, that's in the end where I will always tend to gravitate to. Yeah. Yeah, I find myself being socially liberal and sort of fiscally conservative in most ways. Um, when it comes to this stuff, I sort of, there was a really good talk that or interview that Paul Keating had where he spoke about, I don't know if it was with Lee Sales or it was on um, ABC Radio, which he regularly goes on. Um, but in, in essence, he just spoke about the obvious things like per capita income and, and things like that and how if you compare places like the United States and how ours has grown up until the last five years where it's largely remained flat, mm. which is something that I'm slightly worried about, particularly with the amount of debt that's been taken on by each household in the last 10 years. But um, that to me seems the most obvious thing. If, if you're a, a nation that wants to project your people forward, then you should be focused on things like that. And that may be through stuff like infrastructure spending or education, um, whatever it may be. I agree. I yeah. mean, I, I do agree. I think that is a far better priority than, than uh, worrying about um, fights over the corporate tax rate at the moment yeah well to, to me it, it is strange like it, look if you're a corporation your job is to maximize shareholder returns so they're just doing what they're tasked to do it's it's up for as up to leaders you know politically in particular to make sure that they set a rate that is reasonable for you them know, to I, think I think though it's also up to business leaders to do more than take the easy mantra of maximising shareholder return. After all, that's what all the leaders of the banks did. Yeah, and but that's, it's, it's this. That's innate... why now they're called the defendant. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's this. But it's this innate element of greed, which is is such a a human element, which is is very hard. As we're seeing now with the royal commission, is is very hard for humans to self manage. I feel it's hard for individuals yeah. to, if if the pressure is on you to maximise short term shareholder return and your competitors are doing that and shareholders desert you if you don't also do it. I, yeah, get, yeah. I get that. The pressure is on you. But you are entitled to have a social role. Mm. You are entitled to uh, participate in industry organisations and say something other than how do I get more for myself. You are entitled to advocate uh, better policies, better restraints. You are entitled to say, I support re-regulation of industry in a in a socially useful way mm. you're entitled to say that if you're a business leader you're getting paid millions and millions of dollars uh actually you've got an obligation to be at contributing something to yeah. that social discussion the problem is that i feel that although they're leaders there's so many leaders that actually do end up conforming to that to that narrative of going for what uh the general view is which is go for the money I, I agree, and I know there's pressure on the people to do it, but that's why we should acknowledge people who who do it. Step outside of that. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that was intriguing, um, I'm just going to read out some stats because maybe then people will get a real idea of um, 
the impact of the businesses you've created in the industry. Um, and obviously, I'm I'm myself a member of Oz Super. Um, love it so good because I can access um, Vanguard ETFs directly at some ridiculously low rate. And all that matters when it comes to super is you maximise, uh, you minimise your fees and you maximise your 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 loss of capital. You just don't want to lose capital. That's the main mm-hmm. thing. And so these sort of platforms are brilliant for that. But uh, you created IFSS, IFS, which merged to become what is now known as IFM. Uh, probably the biggest fund manager in Australia, I believe. Is, is that right? No, no, no. It's not, not? No, not at all. It's probably, it may be the leading infrastructure fund manager okay. in Australia. It's one of the biggest. We, we, we manage about $110 billion globally now. Okay. Who would be the biggest? One of the... Big oh, well, Macquarie certainly bigger. Macquarie. Uh, and uh, AMP is bigger. Okay. Well, last <laughs> well, time I until looked. Now, until, until they uh, yeah, go through what's about to happen. Um, so you've got debt investments, infrastructure, listed equities and private equity. Uh, the company is essentially owned by 27 non-for-profit super funds. And I'll explain a little bit about that for the American audience because we've got quite a big American audience as well. And I mean, looking at the landscape of super, looking at the profile of super when it first started to what it is now, I think uh, the the most recent set I could get was 30 June 2018, Australians have $2.7 trillion in superannuation assets. Nearest equivalent in the West... Uh, obviously, being places like Norway, but America has 2.9 trillion from last count. Although this was a 2017 figure, so I don't know a 2018 figure. I'm I'm curious if you were explaining to a complete newbie, they've just immigrated here, they want to become a citizen eventually. What is super, and why is it important? In your words, well, I think in the simplest way is that it's a system that requires or encourages, in our case now requires, a certain amount of current income to be set aside for the long term for the time when you can't work. Mm. And that's really important because otherwise you are reliant on the policies of some future government the budgets of some future government, the financial welfare of some future government. And it's also important because you are restraining consumption and investing in your nation, investing for the future. And so there's a a capital base, not simply a current expenditure base. Uh, So I, I think at its most simple, that's what I would say about it. And Unless there is a degree of, of, unless there is some degree of compulsion about it, people won't do that. I mean, rich people will, of course, because it's no problem. You know, yeah. they can't spend all their money. But the great majority of people, it doesn't matter how advantageous the tax incentive might be, they will prefer a dollar in their hand today to a dollar down the track. And and so there does need to be a bit of um, a bit of stick as well as carrot, but. Uh, at the end of the day, it's it's worthwhile as long as people believe that the system itself is not going to be trashed yeah. by some future government. Yeah, it, it's, it's a very, I mean, so I think what really, it seemed what spurred you on was the fact that 
and this is just in the early days when you're working at uh, the the officers union. Um, I think that the record was that uh, people were coming out into retirement with basically like a year's salary. And I can sort of see how that would have really driven you to to push this agenda in Canberra, or at least politically in some way. Um, but it's, it's interesting because, you know, you look at a lot of places globally, it's it's unique. I, I mean, I don't know if there are other, are other countries that are similar to us, but, you know, most countries are either purely private or purely uh, driven by the government itself. And when I was looking at those American numbers, I think their their social security is woefully underprepared for what's happening to their population, I think. It will be depleted by 2034, apparently. Well, I think certainly it's the case that, um, uh, well, that's true, that it's very basic. It's like more akin to our age pension. It's, it's, quite, yeah. it's quite, quite basic uh, and, and, and variable depending on your work experience and things like that. But the pension system has been, you know, entirely voluntary. And uh, so it's, you know, it's by no means... How, universal in its its coverage no it's based on individual corporations uh, quite often and it relies on the existence of those corporations into exactly. the future to pay the benefits yeah uh, so I, I think you know the people that have got pension systems generally really like them they they cherish them um, and they will as long as the the, the, as long as the company guaranteeing the pension is around to pay it, <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll like that because it guarantees a certain percentage of final salary. Yeah. You know, as a, uh, whereas our, our system largely now is defined contribution, so it depends on what the markets earn over the life of your, over your working life. Yeah. Uh, so there is that sort of risk of the market risk is with the fund itself and then ultimately with the individuals. But it's it's the only way we could organise it because yeah. no one was going to stand behind it with a guarantee check. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and sort of it sort of imposes that cost of this system on both individuals and corporations by incentivising contributions early on in their their career while they're, they're still earning money. Um, it, it's it's very interesting because yeah, you you basically come out at the end with essentially uh, money to support yourself, and it doesn't impose that cost on the government and like you said a government which is dealing with a budget in that present time and a government which may come along five years later with an entirely new budget so and a government that will face far fewer taxpayers as a proportion of retirees that need support yeah because well, of the age but this is this is an interesting point which i heard paul keating speaking to lee sales about which is this contribution amount so here in australia we contribute is it nine? I think it's nine and a half percent now, but it will gradually increase up to twelve and a half by twenty twenty five. Well, it will gradually increase. Uh, the legislation that the Gillard government passed would have it escalating in that way. The current government has had a freeze on it. Yeah, they froze it until twenty twenty one, right? So it's not entirely clear. Yeah. Um, although the polls are fairly clear at the moment but it's not entirely clear what will happen yeah i mean uh, my assumption would be that um a labor government will win next year as long as they keep their messaging up and uh 
that should mean that they have the ability to, to I guess, remove that freeze, right? They appear to be. Um, they appear to be still committed to to allowing that legislation to come into force. Now, the thing that I wanted to make, or the point I want to make with this, is Paul believes that that it's still not enough. He believes for the population. He's talking about particularly people who get to the average age now. I think he said um, is. 85 to somewhere between 85 and 88 but people are getting to 85 and they've basically used all their super or they will have used all their super particularly from the millennial generation like myself um and he spoke about this longevity levy sort of like a medicare levy so you would pay that levy it goes into a pool like insurance and that is used for people who have no you know no super and they've passed a certain age on Mm. the pension Mm. What are your thoughts on, on an idea like that? I think it it bears consideration. Um, that pool, as I understand it, would also mean that people who who are in that insurance pool but do die, uh, that their that they're, benefit they're stays in. That stays yeah. in the pool. Uh, but look, this, the essential thing here is the pace of. Uh, advancement of medical science. That's really the key issue here. Uh, that now, with with so many advances, the cracking of the human genome being principal amongst them, I think, that the pace of medical advancement is so fast uh, and so um, limitless almost that uh, people can live longer and longer and in many cases, you know, live meaningful lives longer and longer and none of that was really contemplated or planned for so that um, you know instead of thinking about a retirement system as catering for those between 65 and 80 you know we we're contemplating the system thinking about uh, covering those between 70 and 100 yeah you know so there's there's the number of a problem there that needs to be examined and Certainly a central insurance scheme would be the most efficient way to deal with it. Yeah. Something that cut in, you know, from for, at 85 or something like that for those who got there uh, could be one way to go. But I think all, all of those things need to be calmly discussed rather than <laughs> put up as, you know, political... Is the idea. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or, or knocked down for no... Without thought because it's not their idea, you know. Yeah. I think they, they need to be calmly discussed and costed. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, um, it's one of many discussions happening in the financial services industry at the moment. I mean, we were chatting before about the Royal Commission. Um, There's obviously been some pretty damning evidence. Um, Obviously, I've spoken about my my work in the the fintech space and interest in this area and how services are delivered delivered to people. And what that looks like, whether it's commission base, you pay a certain standard fee or something like that. Um, I'm curious now, having seen what you've seen over the last few months, where do you sort of see the future of the industry going? Where does where do incentives go? What do you think changes after this royal commission? Uh, well, we haven't seen the final recommendations of the Royal Commissioner, which, you know, there's a number of key questions. Uh, 
that he would be thinking about. One, he would be thinking about whether the for-profit sector, the retail funds, should exist at all. I And some people have called for them not to be licensed. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I, I'm happy to have competition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if if... I think the sole criteria should be performance, long-term performance. But by performance, I mean the net amount that ends up going into the member's account. Yeah. That's the net benefit, the net return after all costs. Uh, so, but, but that will be a question. Should, should, should you be able to make a business that feeds external shareholders uh, and at the same time seeks to provide retirement benefits for, for the members. So I, I say if you can do that and outperform uh, others, fine. If you can't, then you should be struck out because you're not performing. So, uh, But anyway, that's one of the questions. Another question will be whether it is reasonable for a provider of product, superannuation product or wealth management product, to be able to own a financial advisory firm. And I think the answer there should be much clearer. The answer should be no, I think, because there's just so much temptation and motivation for that advice to be perverted and uh, directed towards your owner's product, even, even if there aren't upfront commissions and payable there was always some some way to some way to to do that so i think i think that's a question that needs to be answered now that would mean that um that would mean and a lot of financial planners have correctly made this point that uh you know it costs something to give decent advice and people uh, either can't or are unwilling to pay actual out of their own pocket exactly up front that is a problem and i think that is a problem um yeah. And, and I, think, I think the answer to that, though, is basically that we're going to need to see basic advice robotised, you know, that's standardised. And there's no evidence, actually, that that would be worse. The evidence would be, at the moment, that that would be better. Yeah, ro- robo-advisors like Wealthfront, yeah. um, uh, platforms like NetWealth, where mm. rap platforms where you're basically mm. paying for access to technology. Yeah. Yeah. And I think fun- super funds themselves uh, will, will be allowed to give... General advice, you know, so, and mostly what people need is general advice. They don't actually need uh, highly sophisticated um, uh, um, advice. They need basic advice about being in a decent fund with low fees and a good track record, being in, for most people, a diversified um, portfolio of assets. It's not all your eggs in the one basket. Yeah. And being in there for the long term and getting the advantage of compound interest on compound interest. You know, they need those basic bits of advice. And when is it a good thing to prefer to put more money into super rather than pay off your mortgage? Is it ever, is that ever a good thing? Yeah. Uh, and when would it be a good thing? So it's very basic, simple advice that gives most of the benefit. Most of the rest of the advice often detracts from wealth. What, what consideration has organisations like IFM given to platforms like that you must have seen organizations like wealthfront and so forth that have sort of flourished of late companies like acorns where they try and incentivize uh budgeting and and people putting away 
X amount of a per, you know, if they make a purchase for four dollars seventy, that they put the change, the thirty cents, into their savings account immediately after that. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the particular companies. Yeah. So I, but I think it's a field that will be will attract innovative thinking, and that it needs to because so that the basic cost of giving people reasonable advice is kept is is low. Um, and uh, you know, and there's an enormous amount of room for for objective, even artificial intelligence advice. Yeah. Uh, the, you'd have to say at the moment it would be better than human advice, <laughs> based on most of the recent experience of the Royal Commission. Well, yeah, that is that is certainly true. I feel, I feel like um, yeah, even local businesses. There's one called Clover, which is another robo advisor, would have a sort of field day in a way if they um, were to pick apart some i've read the interim report and if you were to pick apart some of that would be some brilliant marketing copy in there for you right, yeah. um yeah i think one of the things that maybe the the audience outside of australia wouldn't understand is the non-for-profit element so in essence when you have um these non-for-profit fund managers um essentially all the benefit or profits um outside of your operational costs and investment and so forth uh, goes back to the members in return. So that's right. So that's the idea of it. Yeah. And the trustee boards are made up of representatives, truly representative of the members of the fund, mm. not appointed by some external shareholder. Yeah. And how, how are they appointed typically? Well, in the, in the case of industry super funds, uh, they're generally appointed um, uh, half and half, or originally half and half, by employer associations and unions or peak count, union peak council, um, although these days, um, generally generally speaking, they're also you know independent people people with particular expertise on most of those boards. Uh, but but they're generally they're set up by that industrial through that industrial process. The the, the contributions are delivered through the industrial relations system essentially, mm. you know for the most part. And so they're so they're governed by those trustee boards, and then interestingly, these these boards, because I set up quite a number of them back in the eighties, uh, we put in a provision that they would need a two third majority to do anything. Okay. And people said, "Well, how is that going to work? You know, you'll get stalemate and nothing will happen." It never happened. It's never been the case. It what it's meant is people have to come to an agreement, and uh, that agreement has to be. It means probably fairly conservative in its approach, uh, but it means that, that the decision has to be very clearly justified in the members' interests. Yeah. A very interesting topic you've spoken about is infrastructure. And I can I can see based on the investments by IFM and, and your, I guess, involvement with organisations like Pacific Hydro, that infrastructure has always been a sort of passionate area for you. Yeah, um, yeah, well, that's true for a reason, though. I mean, the, the why? The, well, the initial reason was that we we knew from investment theory and practice that if you want to outperform, you need to uh, have some different characteristics. So one yeah. of the ways to outperform is to is to invest in areas uh, where there is illiquidity, where it's not easy to get your money in and out. Um, if you don't need the liquidity, then you can get a premium essentially by putting your money in for the longer term, foregoing that liquidity, 
other people need liquidity, so you end up getting some premium for that. Secondly, we knew that that you can also get add value by uh, being in areas that are less researched than others. And we've started very early in the infrastructure space to research that space. Uh, because it stands to reason, I mean, every broker, every analyst in Australia and half not in Australia uh, have every single report ever written on BHP, mm. for example. They all have that information, <laughs> all have the same information uh, by and large, and they're all madly analysing it and, and, and claiming to have different ways to view it. But in the end, it's the same information. So very, very difficult to add value over and above your competitors in the in the stock in the listed market very mm. very difficult yeah and uh, this sort of goes to something that warren buffett always talks about is having a managerial informational or emotional advantage of some kind in an investment um and i remember bernard said that you're one of the f- you were one of the few funds ifm is and always has been one of the few funds where you're you're actively engaged in management would you agree with that Oh uh, yeah, because you know we we have we've in, involved ourselves with these unlisted assets, big infrastructure assets, and yeah. some other private equity assets, uh, and and we and we want to hold those assets for the long term, and we want to maximise the value of those assets in the long term, not the short term. So it stands to reason we have to engage in in the in the management of those assets. Yeah. Now, you said the point I was trying to make with the infrastructure is you said something that was very interesting to me because I've been saying it to five years, for five years to people around me is this engagement of super funds. I don't know if it's a quota or, or what it is, engagement of some kind with the government around infrastructure, getting them to be more involved in infrastructure. Um, ha- have you thought at all about what that policy would look like how could how could you do it that wouldn't impose too much costs on funds i think the first thing i don't support quotas i think they very quickly turn into outdated rules Mm. um, and just burdens Uh, but while i don't support quotas i do support um, open and transparent dialogue between governments and the financial sector generally super funds in particular and the business community about the investment requirements of the nation, you know, what infrastructure will be required going forward, what the best way to deliver that is, and it will nearly always be a a mixture of government and private activity because governments don't have bottomless pockets, taxpayers don't have bottomless pockets. Uh, and, And for all of that to be conducted in a transparent way and for all of that to be linked back to not, not my fund, but to every registered super fund to have the opportunity to participate in such a project. So, you know, under that model, people would engage, they would, they would, um, they would bargain essentially with, with governments, state and federal. They would come to a, a target rate of return. They'd come to a, a target for the, for the asset, the project itself. What, what should it B, how should it look? What innovations can you make for it? How would it be handled into the future? How would it be further developed? All of the elements would be on the table. You'd have a target rate of return. You'd have uh, the government trying to 
or rather the, 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 the proponent on behalf of super funds trying to get the government to remove as many risks as they could through either their balance sheet or through their planning powers. Um, and you'd, you'd have the government trying to ensure that it doesn't give away too high a return or cost yeah. of money or that the taxpayers participate yeah. in excess returns. Uh, and you'd come to a conclusion and you'd offer it to every super fund in Australia. And they could either take it or not take it. So it sort of seems like a, a, a specific prospectus. It would be. And, yeah. and every super fund would be free to either say, yes, we want to be in there yeah. or not. If if you had oversubscription, that is more funds wanting to be in there than you needed in terms of the capital, then you just scale them back according to some fair formula, according to their size or number of members or something. Yeah, I, I really like this idea. I think it's it's brilliant because, like I said, I've been thinking about that for a long time because there's, it's, it's hard to incentivize investment in infrastructure. I mean, the greatest example right now is energy policy. Um, what incentive is there for energy wholesalers to create a new plant of some kind when the more demand there is, the higher the prices are. And also, they've got to go outlay that capital and then get a return on it over 20, 30 years. It's just, it's a it's a messy system that, um, I don't know, I think it could be done a bit better. Well, I think, you know, I get what you're saying, but I don't think the main problem is the reluctance of of companies to invest. After all, if they don't, someone else will. You know, an outsider, a new entrant will invest. Mm. Uh, the real problem is that you, you mentioned the 30-year time horizon. To make uh, a project work, if it's a solar plant, if it's a wind farm, if it's a hydro plant, or indeed if it was a, a gas plant or a coal-fired plant, you need a 30-year window yeah. payback that means you need stability of policy for 30 years. Now, everyone now recognises that it's not going to be possible to have stable policy around uh, more and more coal-fired power. It's just not going to happen because the science is just clearer and clearer and clearer. The problem is that we have created through ideological rifts in this country and some other countries a situation where there's nothing you can invest in <laughs> because you might be very, very clear about um, solar being by far the cheapest in the next five years. You might be quite clear that ultimately battery storage will be there to regulate solar. But if you think there's some chance of a government mandating a compulsory competitor just so they can say they built a coal-fired power station. You know, you're going to be very wary about investing in anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been speaking to Simon Holmes, a court who he speaks a lot about renewables. Mm. He did this um, Q&A the other day. I can't remember who it was with. Maybe it was Sydney Morning Herald or Guardian or Herald Sun. I don't know. Um, but interestingly, he believes that it's it's still cheaper in terms of that 30 day 30 year payback period it's still cheaper to build solar wind with battery technology than it is for for gas uh well the only thing i'm not certain about is the what the battery technology gives you in yeah. terms of reliability on demand it's getting better every day and the yeah. cost's coming down but i don't think it's quite 
my understanding would be, and I haven't been close to this for, for a little while, but my understanding would be that technology is not yet there in terms of ensuring the deliverability of the energy exactly when it's needed. Now, the, the variability question is exaggerated wildly by the coal lobby, and many countries have a much higher, much higher um, allocation to renewable energies than we than we do. Yeah. But but there is still a there is still an issue there that um, we haven't learnt yet how to cheaply store power to completely eliminate the daily fluctuations in the sun or the wind. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting this summer because um, there was a new Tesla battery installed here in Victoria. I just can't remember which solar plant it was installed next to, but it's 500 megawatt hours. So that's about um, an eighth of what we require on a daily basis during summer. So that'll be very interesting. I mean, my new pet uh, thing, my, my new website that I love checking out is called Open NEM and it looks at each state and the national grid. And it's just intriguing to look at some of the records that are set by places tassie is unbelievable in in how much energy they export to other states um you know like last last week i think the the system was exporting about 40 50 percent of the energy requirements that it had to the other state Mm. other other states being mainly victoria and south australia Mm. And the Tasmanians would like would like, I think, to to build a second undersea cable to yeah. to deliver more. And uh, I'm not sure about the economics of that. It certainly would would enhance um, reliability of the system in the mainland. Mm. So that's one option. You know, that is one option. It has to be set against building a a peak, you know a gas plant or taking the 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 slightly longer term view on just relying on battery. Uh, battery, technology. battery technology. Yeah, you're about to retire. I, I mean, the the different roles that you had uh, are quite quite numerous, which I've already listed a few. But um, at the moment, I think you're retiring for um, the chair of IFM Investors, New Daily. Um, obviously, you've also served time at Pacific Hydro, Infrastructure Australia, Emmy Bank, Melbourne Docklands Authority, and Infrastructure Australia, and Industry Super. You were chair for a while. Um, why retire now? I'm 70. I'm feeling it. <laughs> I think it's... Feeling think, it as in you can't be bothered getting up early in the morning uh, or... Uh, well, uh, perhaps a little, but I, I think, you know, all organisations need to um, try and keep themselves renewed and so on. And uh, if you're a, you're a leader, then you, sh- you, sh- you should be part of that. And so I've, you know, planned my retirement for some time. Uh, it seems like a pretty good time. Um, you know, we've had enormous success this year uh, with finally, you know, proving the point about our representative trustee model as a superior performer. Um, we've got, I think, it's very likely we'll get some some positive reforms around the edge of super as well. For example, um, getting rid of the um, the the minimum requirement of four hundred and fifty dollars a month that. Uh, to qualify for super, because the problem with that has been that uh, in the casualised industries, you might work, uh, you might earn $2,000, but if it's 
not more than 450 from any one employer. You don't get any super. Right. And that just contributes to this small account problem. And then everyone complains, well, there's all these small accounts getting chewed up by fees. Well, that's the reason. Yeah. There's also that problem as well as the, the amount of duplicate accounts that, that yeah. exist. Well, the duplicate that. accounts is partly a function of that. Of that. Yeah. Of that. It's partly a function of that. And duplicate accounts can be solved technologically now. And indeed, yeah. the industry funds have a free matching service where they will match and, and consolidate, you know. So I think the industry funds have been doing more on this than anyone. Uh, they haven't always done as much as they should. Uh, but, you know, I think all of that, we've had we've had great returns. So the, the market's now looking a bit ordinary, I must admit, in the last <laughs> few months. Yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, to be expected through the cycle. That's why you need, you know, a balanced portfolio, really. Um, and But, you know, there's been great few great years of returns now and IFM has had you know fantastic global growth now uh, you know I have I think nine offices around the world we've you know we've got three uh, 340 institutional investors about 280 of them are offshore hmm. uh, so we've really you know reached reached a few milestones and so it seems like a pretty good time to uh, to pass on the, the baton. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember my days of working at Ibisport. I used to have IFM investors as a client, private equity team there. Always right. fun to deal with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I hope they gave you a hard time. <laughs> they certainly did. They certainly gave me a hard time on price, that's for sure. Right. Um, what are you most excited for? Um, oh, no. Well, I mean, I mean, personally, I'm just looking to have a little, little bit of a period at least where I don't have anything like the responsibilities that's at a personal level and my partner Angela is uh, stepping down from uh, the chair of the Hester Super Fund yep. at the same time and, oh, really? and so she, she'll hopefully have a bit of time with me as well <laughs> um, but in terms in terms of the industry and the economy I, I would really I really think there's no real reason now why, with all of this Royal Commission and Productivity Commission findings behind us, we can't create a new consensus between the super industry as a whole, uh, with with the business community and governments to really work out how we can do better for ourselves mm. and for the community and the society and sustainability and all of those goals simultaneously. I think there's a real opportunity to be uh, creative and collaborative about that rather than standing in ideological corners. Do you think you would involve yourself at any point if there are political discussions, debates to be had in a year from now? I'm not pushing that, but yeah. I would be very happy to, you know, I, I have a, I'm a passionate believer in our country and, uh, uh, and in society, you know, and uh, so, of, of course, I'd contribute in some way if I could. Last question for you before we jump into some short, fast questions. Uh, looking back at your career now, what is the most interesting observation of your time? Wow. Um, I remember a great line from Paul Keating that said, well, something to the effect, in the race of life, always back the horse called, called self-interest because at least you know it's trying. <laughs> and I, I think I'd, I have to regretfully say that that I my experience has you know has reinforced that uh, and that's interesting that is that's interesting you can't lose sight of that mm. uh, 
but it doesn't mean to say you give up on humanity. It just means to say you need to, uh, you need to create a framework of society that takes the sharp edge off that and channels that for the good of society. And uh, so I, I think that's, that's, that's one of the interesting things I've sort of learned, I think. I think that's a very interesting observation. I've always sort of held a similar belief that there's a sort of innate uh, element to human nature where you, you sort of will go for yourselves or your tribe, mm. as, we're, as we're seeing politically at the moment. Um, short, fast questions for you. What does your morning routine look like? Uh when I'm good, Gary, it, it's uh, it involves a bit of gym work and uh, you know a bit of bit on the bike and a few weights. Okay. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, when I'm bad, Gary, it involves getting completely buried in the new daily. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too good. Um, evening routine. What does that look like? How do you sort of decompress at night? Um, I these uh, uh, days I. I I used to do that by gathering um, with colleagues as frequently as I could in a nearby water, watering hole. <laughs> I do that far, far less these days. Um, but so I, I, I just I enjoy um, pottering around and uh, assisting Angela with a bit of prep, meal preparation, have a couple of glasses of wine. You know, I think that's pretty good. I, I often also look at the the. Um, SBS Spanish news because I've been trying to uh, uh-huh, yeah. trying to uh, find a way to speak Spanish and uh, Bernard had, had mentioned that you had some well, he, he, pretty good Spanish. Well, you know, he's fluent, you know, yeah, he's he really good uh, because he was the head of Shell in Caracas in Venezuela for many yeah. years. Uh, so I'm nowhere near to his standard, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm aspiring to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're coming up to Christmas. If you had to gift a book to the audience for Christmas. What would it be, and why? Wow. Oh, um, I think it would probably be. No, oh, that's too hard for me. <laughs> too... For one thing, I for one thing, I have tremendous difficulty in remembering the names. I read a lot of novels, okay, but I have tremendous difficulty in 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 recalling them. So you and, read uh, mainly novels, do you? I read mainly novels in when I'm not in business mode. It, at work, I'd read mainly okay. novels. Do you, do you go for like a s- certain flavour, like thrillers, crime? I go for romantic. I go for <laughs> I go for Man Booker Prize winners. Man Booker Prize winners. Okay. Yeah, basically. Well, we'll have to hit you up afterwards and make sure we get a link for one. Yeah, I, I can very happy to to give you uh, recommendations on a number if you like, but I'd I'd have to think think about it a little more, bit, bit more. Yeah, I feel like this question is always one that um, gets people a bit. Um, what frustrates you that society is not able to find middle ground on? Uh, f- fair distribution, not just of wealth, but of wealth and work and income. Mm-hmm. There's just no consensus that's even within a ballpark of being reasonable or rational, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, when you think of success, who or what comes to mind um well probably um you know i'm I'm probably conditioned these days to think about uh you know the success of a of a warren buffett rather than a sports hero or a political hero you know (laughs) just being conditioned by my 
work experience. So I, I think probably, um, you know, I think I think it's pretty hard to beat, by the way, the collective success of the industry super movement. I think it's pretty hard to beat. <laughs> yeah. And it's, that's and I, I, I'm not one of these people that thinks that's about an individual. <laughs> you know, I think it's about a lot of people. Yeah. But uh, I think it is pretty hard to beat as a modern-day success story. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, I... I appreciate the I appreciate the uh, both the incredible um, technological companies that have been built I don't really admire the fact that people can become billion billion billionaires I don't really see what that's about um, and uh, you know I think a lot of those people should be reinvesting a lot of that money into now civilizing those media yeah, well, we're seeing a lot of um, we're seeing a lot of that at the moment with organisations like Bill and Melinda Gates mm. and so forth, which would be interesting to see how that pans out over the next ten to fifteen years. Yeah, well, they, look, they genuinely they pop up quite a lot, and they genuinely are doing some great things around the world, no doubt. Yeah, but I'd like to see some of the newer media Google's and actually civilise their own product. Yeah. Um, last question for you. What's been the best purchase under two hundred dollars? Wow! <laughs> uh, so ha- handy little purchase you've you've had. Yeah, uh, it it probably I reckon it's probably a toss up between uh, a golf iron and a bottle of wine. I reckon, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've had a few, a few of both. Uh, uh, so um, golf or wine, love it. Yeah. Look, um, Gary, thanks for giving up an hour of your afternoon. It's been a pleasure having you here. I've enjoyed the chat. Um, where can people learn more about what you've done, what IFM Investors is doing, the well, New Daily? I don't run a yeah, I don't run a personal personal <laughs> website. I don't. I'm not on Facebook. I never will be. Uh, and uh, but you can certainly learn about IFM Investors on on online. Yeah. Uh, certainly do that, and but it, but we're a wholesale investor. We're not looking for individual. Of course, yeah. we we you know we we manage fund for institutional investors, mainly super funds. Yeah, well, we'll make sure we we give links to IFM investors, the New Daily. I would have loved to chat more about that and business models and media, but um, mm, well, the New Daily is a free news service, and yeah. it's 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 improving every all the time. We're up to, uh, I just got the number this morning we're up to uh 2.65 million uh unique views per month on google analytics this month yeah it's it's something like um i don't know if i wish i'd remembered this statistic is either top five or top 20 news organization in the world i read i read this today not not in the world no it's it's in the nielsen top 20 in australia maybe maybe but I, i was looking at um there was a journalist for the AFR or Sydney Morning Herald that actually was tweeting about it today. All right. Yeah. That's great. It's yeah. great when our competitors start talking about us. It's great. <laughs> well, look, um, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for making it this far. Before you run off, we have a quick ask for you. Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. Or you could also share with a friend. This will go a long way in building our audience, which will help us both get further guests on the show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, 
or YouTube by searching Neural, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. But until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON.